Welcome to another episode of the EU Roundup. Hope you are well in these trying times, we're here as ever, bringing you last week's most notable news from around Europe. In today's episode, we'll take a look into facial recognition software being used in public spaces here in Europe. There will also be talk on developments regarding the EU budget, and of course, a quick round of news to top it all off. But first, let's focus on some positive news. The 90% effective COVID vaccine announced by Pfizer and BioNTech. We didn't expect this high, high efficacy rate scientifically, of course, it is in the range of, of something which could happen. But, uh, but uh, with regard uh, to the aspect that this virus is, is, is unknown and we don't know escape mechanisms, we don't know how hard it, is, it will be to, to, to address that, an efficacy rate of over 90% is incredibly positive and we are absolutely happy with this outcome. That was Dr. Ur Shaheen, CEO of BioNTech, speaking to CNBC after news broke out of a possibly very effective COVID vaccine. We say possibly because there are still some variables to take a look at. So let's go ahead and do just that. The announcement from Pfizer and BioNTech came last Monday, indicating that tests had shown 90% effectiveness of their COVID vaccine. The news were understandably met with a lot of excitement. Medical workers breathed a huge sign of relief, politicians rushed to take credit for the achievement, all the while, even experts in the field were no longer just cautiously optimistic. Peter Horby, an infectious disease professor at the University of Oxford, wrote a statement. He started by saying that the news had made him smile from ear to ear. But he continued by explaining that there is a long way before vaccines will start to make a real difference. One of the points made by Horby is that official data hasn't yet been published. And the study showing 90% efficacy hasn't been peer-reviewed. When it comes to science, having your results checked by peers in your field is essential in terms of credibility. BioNTech and Pfizer have promised that if all goes to plan, they will submit their data to the European Medicines Agency this week. Another detail to take into consideration is that we don't know how effective the vaccine is for people in the risk group. This is arguably the most important criteria in terms of efficacy of the vaccine, since those are the people who have been the most affected by the COVID pandemic. And finally, the last and maybe biggest concern is transport and storage of the vials. Those invented by Pfizer and BioNTech require being kept at a temperature of minus 80 degrees Celsius. That complicates providing access to the vaccine in certain more remote regions, for example. Distribution will certainly be the final tricky element which companies have begun contemplating recently. For reference, providing a single dose to 7.6 billion of Earth's population would fill 8,000 Boeing 747 cargo aircrafts. A daunting task, to be sure. Distribution between countries will also be an issue to be solved. And preparations are already underway. Pfizer and BioNTech have estimated they will produce 1.3 billion doses in 2021, with only 50 million doses made by the end of 2020. Production is certainly not up to par with demand, but luckily there are other pharmaceutical companies who are also developing their vaccines. A quick reminder, last Wednesday Russia came out with a statement that their vaccine had 92% efficacy. The country jumped the gun and announced their vaccine in the summer, ahead of large-scale testing. Currently, 40,000 volunteers at 29 medical centers are taking part in the third and final phase of the Russian Sputnik V trials. 
Meanwhile, the EU rushed to secure access for its citizens to the Pfizer and BioNTech vaccine. The European Commission agreed to purchase 200 million doses of the vaccine, with the option to purchase an additional 100 million. In terms of distribution across Europe, some details were released recently. It appears that hard-hit countries will benefit from more vaccines. Italy stands to receive 40 million doses, while Spain is looking to secure just about 20 million. We don't know specifics about that just yet, and there is still the question of how each member state will approach vaccination and whether or not it should be mandatory. Lots to think about, but at least there's some positive news amid a season that has been less than easygoing. After moving forward with an agreement regarding the rule of law the week before, last week the EU made steps towards agreeing on the budget as well. While the European Parliament still has to vote in order to officially give its accord on the multi-annual financial framework, they reached an agreement with the Council of the EU. The two institutions thrashed out the details of how much money each program should benefit from. And, in a typical Brussels fashion, a compromise was struck that allowed both sides to claim victory. The European Parliament declared it had obtained 16 billion euros for key programs. While the Council got to say that the revenue came largely from reallocation of funds and will not affect the agreed expenditure limits. The use of revenue from fines for breaking competition law allowed the negotiators to reach an increase in the budget that was acceptable for both sides. Health, research and aid programs will receive a rise in their subsidies. But for some, the New Deal was still not enough. Namely for Kurt Dechteler, Secretary General of the League of European Research Universities. For him, a 4 billion euros increase for the research-aimed Horizon program was not enough. But, as ever, when a compromise is struck, there is the feeling that the job was halfway done. Also, as expected, Hungary and Poland could still veto the budget. On the other hand, making sure that the budget is spent correctly would be the biggest challenge. That was emphasized even more by a recent report by the European Court of Auditors, based here in Luxembourg. The report states that budget spending for 2019 registered a high rate of errors. Auditors estimated an error rate that rose to 2.7%, which is a lot considering the large sums of money. And even more so, considering it's on an upward trajectory, registering 2.6% in 2018 and 2.4% in 2017. So it seems like properly deploying the EU's resources will be an even bigger priority. When you think about how tracking of us online really was pioneered. It was pioneered by companies, by social media firms, and by advertisers. And what they've been able to pioneer is taking disparate pieces of information about us from across the web, our likes and dislikes, and create profiles about us. And believe it or not, you can already start doing this with faces. It even has a term. It's called facial analytics. The voice you just heard was that of Parmi Olsen. She is a reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Being specialized in writing about technology, she gave a TED talk on how facial analytics technology is being used, which is where this soundbite was from. The use of facial recognition software is a topic that has been raised before, but it has come back to the forefront recently. Activist groups across Europe have joined forces to ask the EU to ban the use of the technology. They have dubbed their campaign, reclaim your face, and hope to make an impact on a wider scale. However, the discussion has been largely dominated by big tech companies who are pushing for their products to be implemented. Leaders in the field are Amazon, Microsoft, Chinese company Megvi, as well as IBM and others. The advocacy groups of the Reclaim Your Face campaign are aiming to insert themselves in the talks on an EU level. 
They want to bring some balance into the negotiations and to represent the opinions and rights of the European citizens. The campaign was launched in Italy, Greece, the Netherlands, the Czech Republic and Serbia, as those are the countries where activism on the issue has had success so far. The technology is used by over 160 countries worldwide and often goes unnoticed. The way it works is that first the software goes through photos in police records and maps people's faces. The second step of the process takes part in the public space. CCTV and other cameras monitoring events, for example, scan faces in the crowds. If there is a match, police officers are notified. The issues for activist groups are first of all the general lack of consent or simply awareness by the public. Some consider this an infringement on human rights and a technology that might pave the way to a mass surveillance state. Another argument is that the technology is not effective enough. While the police often claims it helps catch criminals, multiple studies have pointed to the lack of concrete proof of that. Those are some of the issues that have led some countries to halt the use of facial recognition software in public spaces. In the US, some states or cities have banned the use while others allow it. Over in Europe, it's still largely ungoverned. There aren't any laws that specifically address the topic. The EU announced publicly in the beginning of the year it will consider banning the practice for up to five years. Their idea being that the technology is inaccurate and needs time to catch up, while activist groups argue that it is not an issue of technology but one of human rights and how we use that technology. China has, for example, embraced the use of facial recognition. Customers in pharmacies require face scans for certain medicine, while the technology can also be spotted on public transportation and even in public toilets. It has even been used to target the Uyghur Muslim community in the country. Over here in Europe, the jury is still out on facial recognition, and there's already a growing concern of government surveillance. And now, here's a quick round of news from last week. The conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan had re-escalated in recent weeks. The ceasefire that was agreed previously was broken and the armed conflict continued. The total casualties are believed to be around 5,000. Last week peace was finally achieved, a deal was brokered by Russia, who has already deployed peacekeeping troops. Territories were redrawn and Armenia is set to lose influence in the region. As a result, protests erupted in the capital Yerevan. Armenians are unhappy with the outcome and are blaming the government and Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan. In other news, Brexit negotiations have been stretched, passing the deadline again. The talks that were set to conclude mid-November will continue this week. The cited reason for that has been insufficient progress in the negotiations. The next informal deadline is the video conference of EU leaders this Thursday. If a deal is not reached by then, Brussels will likely start putting into place its contingency legislation and prepare for a no-deal scenario. As the clock is ticking, there is seemingly one positive. This is the last deadline before the end of Brexit. That was all for today's podcast. As always, thank you very much for listening. We'll be back with another episode on Tuesday at 9.30.